I hear you're looking for a gift and you still haven't found that gift for that person who needs that gift this time of year. Might I recommend a book I think that person would like? I've heard good things about it. It's You Are Now Less Dumb. It's the sequel to You Are Not So Smart. It's my new book and it is, uh, it's now available in paperback. Yes, softer, easier to put in your pocket and less expensive. And it's available everywhere that books are sold. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 39. I've got feet. Take me places and legs for running races and arms for warm embraces, not to mention my gorgeous face. It might sound quite... Uh, Allow me to introduce you to Mr. Slim Goodbody, or just Mr. Goodbody to most people. And if you could see him right now, you would probably not be able to take your eyes away from his skin-tight unitard covered in anatomically correct two-scale realistic illustrations of all of his internal organs. That and the dancing. And the hair. Right. Under our skin, we've all got muscles to move around. Bone so we don't fall down. A small and a large intestine. A liver and a stomach for food digestion. A heart. When I was in elementary school, we used to watch episodes of Mr. Goodbody's show, which ran on PBS at the time, and each episode was devoted to a different aspect of what happens underneath your skin hidden from view, outside of your conscious awareness. For instance, what you're hearing right now is from a show about the heart. What is this? Right, the heart. The greatest pump, the greatest muscle in the world. Now, everybody, hold your hand out like this. Pretend you've got a rubber ball in your hand. Pretend the rubber ball is filled up with water. There's a hole in the top. Squeeze the rubber ball. Out comes the water. Oh, man. I remember every little bit of this. It takes me right back. And there's this next part coming up about the heart that I think that everyone who watched this as kids will remember. I will never forget this. It's, it's, It's where all my knowledge of the heart first comes from. And even now, I hear it in my head when I think about hearts. Only I like to think that my heart sounds something like this. Yes, lubba-dubba, lubba-dubba. We did that all the time. And I'll never forget it because in the next part of the show, he illustrates how animals of different sizes have different sized hearts and they beat faster or slower like this. A bird's heart goes very fast. And so does the small mammals. But a large one goes. 
Never doubt that PBS isn't an amazing, wonderful thing. I uh, I owe this show wouldn't be here without PBS and Lubba Dubba Lubba Dubba. So yes, of course, as children, we laughed at Mr. Goodbody and we were and we were all kind of creeped out by his flayed jauntiness and his skinless joy. But I have to hand it to Mr. Bernstein. Um, he created a way to educate kids about the things inside of us that we would never have considered otherwise. Your heart beats about 80 to 90 times a minute. But it can go a lot faster when you exercise. So think about this for a moment. Your organs hidden from your view outside of your conscious awareness, just like Mr. Goodbody was trying to say. And consider... Things like, let's say, your pancreas. First of all, you probably don't do that very often. That is, um, you know, considerate. This is probably the first time you've thought about it this year, or the second or the third, unless you have some reason to think about pancreases. And you, you might not even know what it does or where it is in your body. It makes hormones, by the way, like insulin and, uh, and some digestive juices as well. And it's, uh, it's kind of behind your stomach. And yes, I had to look all of that up to be sure I knew anything about it at all. And it sits inside you all day, all year, your whole life doing its thing without any need for your attention, no need for you to help outside of your control, automatic, unconscious, invisible, except on Mr. Goodbody's unitard. But our show is not just about my body here. Oh no, it's about your body too. So right now, everyone who's watching, point to your body and say, this is my body. Good. Point to the person sitting next to you. Say, that is your body. Right. Under our skin. It's quite astonishing to consider how little we knew about our insides until recently, as a species. Up until the Enlightenment, much of what we knew about how the inside of the body looked and worked came from early thinkers like Galen, who got a lot of things wrong and we just simply didn't build on our knowledge for a very long time. And uh, even, you know, after the Enlightenment, it took a while. And, and up until just, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, so much was a complete mystery. And uh, going to the doctor 100 years ago, 200 years ago, that was, uh, that was risky. That was very risky. And definitely no one knew uh, for many, many years, especially until recently, what the pancreas was for. And most people throughout all of human history lived their entire lives, never even knowing that it existed at all. More people in your family tree than not had no idea what blood was or how it worked or had any knowledge about nutrition or muscles or the heart or heart disease. And today as children, we learn about these things, lubba-dubba, lubba-dubba, lubba-dubba. And if you're listening to this, chances are you know more about the body on the inside than did most doctors just a few hundred years ago. So that means that although it is an, an astonishing fact that we have livers and that livers work without any help from our conscious minds, we accept this. It's common knowledge. It doesn't seem weird. Yet there is another level when seeing our bodies from this perspective that has yet to become common knowledge that still feels really too weird to be true. And that is that your brain is mostly doing things that have nothing to do with consciousness that 
although you can sort of think of yourself as, as being the brain, that doesn't mean the conscious part of you is what the brain is really concerned with doing. If you've read uh, David Eagleman's book, Incognito, he goes into great detail on this. And, you know, generally speaking, what the, you know, the, the great theme of the book is that the conscious mind is just one aspect of the brain. It's just one of the many things that it does. Yes, the brain gives rise to consciousness, but it isn't wholly conscious, nor is consciousness wholly the brain. Consciousness is just, it's just a tenant. It's just a tenant in a building filled with all sorts of other tenants who are concerned with other things. Each one, of course, is motivated to keep the organism alive and to keep going, to keep functioning, to, to reproduce and all these other things that, that life forms do. But only one tenant, only one very small part of that building is consciously aware. Uh, <laughs> the rest of it is like the pancreas or the liver or the heart. It just does what it does, keeping the organism going. And there's no need for the, your conscious awareness to sort of link up with that part of the, of the brain. The two don't have to communicate. And in fact, most of the brain has no ability to communicate at all. And there's absolutely no way for consciousness to interact with it. And David Eagleman actually takes it a little further than this. Uh, He says, and he's a neuroscientist, he's a well-regarded neuroscientist. He says that the conscious part of you is like a stowaway on a steamship, like the Titanic or something, right? And you're just one stowaway. You're, You're Leonardo DiCaprio. And Although you're this one tiny part of the entire thing, you have this intuition that you're the captain and not just that, that you're kind of the whole ship, that you are the steamship, that all the things it does is you when really the part of you that wakes up every morning is just the, a very tiny aspect of all of the complicated and amazing things that the brain does. One of the most striking examples of this, one of the ways we can see evidence of its truth is in patients who suffer from a condition known as blindsight. These are people who have suffered some sort of brain damage, rendering them blind without the ability to see. And yet, if you ask them to walk across an unfamiliar room littered with objects and obstacles, they can do this no problem. Or if you show them photos of people smiling or frowning, their faces will react, producing smiles or frowns of their own in response. And they will feel the emotions that you would feel when looking at faces like that. But when you ask them, they are unaware of the obstacles. They're unaware of the faces. They're confused even, even perplexed as to, how, as to why their faces are doing those things. And this is because only the conscious part of their brains is blind. The unconscious part is still receiving input from the eyes. And so it still sends signals out to the legs and helps navigate the organism. It still upturns the mouth and makes the face grin. And that's when consciousness notices that something's happening because the face is still connected to consciousness, but the eyes are not. The eyes are only going uh, to this unconscious part of the brain that's always there in you right now doing the exact same thing, but you're unaware of it. You'll never be aware of it. It's just that we only can see that in people who have suffered a certain kind of brain damage. Another great example of this is the Iowa gambling task. In experiments where people are presented four decks of cards and they're told to try to win as much money as they can, uh, in each turn, they turn over a card from one of the top of the decks and then they're told either that they've won some money or that they have lost some money. And that's pretty much it. Now, what they don't know is that some of these decks are loaded with bad flips. And some of these decks are loaded with good flips. So there are bad decks and there are good decks, but after about 50 or 60 or so turns, most people will hone in on which deck is the good deck and uh, which decks they should avoid. But 
when you hook people up to equipment that can measure stress and anxiety on the, by measuring the galvanic skin response, it seems as though the brain begins to notice long before people become consciously aware. As they reach out for the bad decks, the unconscious parts of them are already freaking out. And you can see this in, in the measurements, usually around the 10th flip or so, way before uh, these people become consciously aware of the fact that they are honing in on good decks and avoiding bad decks. So you see, there are parts of you that are not the conscious part of you. <laughs> they, they're, they're still tenants in this building that you're inside of. And all the tenants are concerned with the well-being of the building. They're, all these, uh, these entities of the brain are concerned with the survival of the organism, but they can't all speak. Most of them are hidden from your view outside of your awareness. But each one is just as vital and active as the heart beating inside your chest. Unconscious learning. That's what we're going to talk about today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McCraney and I will be your host. And on each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we talk about another topic in the realm of self-delusion, the psychology of reasoning and decision-making, the neuroscience of judgment, and all the other related topics that go into why we think the things that we think and how we get them so very wrong so often. And in this episode, we're going to talk about unconscious learning. Specifically, we're going to talk about this concept that is related to blindsight that we talked about earlier, and it's called blind insight. And we're going to interview one of the scientists who is on the team who helped discover this phenomenon, helped coin the actual, uh, the term blind insight. But first, a word from one of our sponsors. If you've been to the post office recently, right here, right now, around the holidays, oh, why? Why do we have to do this? I have a phone in my pocket that I can go beep, bop, beep, beep, and have a car come pick me up wherever I am. I can, uh, I can take out my phone and watch a trailer for a movie right before I go see it. Why do I still live in a world where I have to stand in line and go through all of this horrible, horrible, grueling, terrible experience? Why do I do this? Why do I do this to myself? in the future. I should be living in the future. And thankfully, someone out there thought, yeah, you should be. And they're called stamps.com. They know that with the holidays here, you don't want to deal with traffic and parking and you don't have time to go to the post office and you don't, you don't want to deal with it being packed and everyone mailing holiday gifts and packages. With stamps.com, you can avoid all of these hassles and all the other hassles of going to the post office, even during other times of the year, as but especially during the holiday season. And all you have to do is, is use stamps.com right from your desk where you can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. You can print postage for any letter or package the instant you need it. And the mailman will come and pick it up at your house. That is insane and amazing. I love it. It is so easy and convenient. I use stamps.com all the time. I send out all the merchandise and, um, and all the giveaways and stuff that we do on the show. And every time, uh, you know, we have the cookie recipe and I give a book out, a signed book, we send it out using stamps.com every single time. And, uh, even here during the holidays, we had some people who needed some, uh, some things. We sent those out with stamps.com too. They give you this little silver futuristic scale that you can use to, uh, figure out the postage. 
and uh, you type it in, boop, get the thing printed out, stick it to it, boom, it's gone. And right now you can get this special offer when you use my promo code SMART. It's a no-risk trial and you get a $110 bonus that includes that digital scale and up to $55 with the free postage. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on that microphone at the top of the page and type in SMART. That's stamps.com and enter SMART. S-M-A-R-T. And now we return to our program. Our guest today is the cognitive psychologist, Ryan Scott. He works out of the University of Sussex and his work, his research, uh, which he's done with his team, has uncovered something called blind insight. And it is similar, sort of similar to blindsight. And it, it really will help you understand this idea of... Uh, unconscious learning, the concept that you can learn things and not know that you're learning them and that you can be affected by all sorts of things uh, in your unconsciousness. And, uh, and the fact that the brain has many, many, uh, many tenets and there are many, uh, many agencies at work. So without, without any further delay, let's pick his brain. Uh, Ryan, before we uh, before we get into your research, we should probably talk a little bit about some of the things that informed it. And um, there's this really great phenomenon that you mentioned several times uh, before you start uh, discussing blind insight in your paper. You mentioned another phenomenon that, in many ways, sort of helps make sense of what you've discovered. And that phenomenon is blind sight. Could you sort of describe that phenomenon to listeners who may have never heard of it before? Yes, of course. I mean, just to point out, the reason we called it blind insight was to, to highlight this relationship because it is, in a, in a very real sense, the opposite of this other phenomenon called blind sight. So blind sight was identified way back in the 50s, but what it amounts to is in certain patients, and this has also been recreated in, in animals deliberately, in monkeys, but in, in human beings, they can have damage to their visual cortex, um, which leaves them with an area of their vision, which they say, I can't see anything there. I am blind in that region of my vision. So they have no visual experience at all. However, if you were to present stimuli in that area and say, right, is this line vertical or horizontal? They'd say, well, you, what, what, what are you asking me that for? I've told you I can't see anything there. I'm blind. But you say, okay, well, well, just humor me here and guess. Take a guess. Is it vertical or horizontal? What you find is when they're making those guesses, they're, they're accurate way above 80% in some instances. So they, they have this insight to the, to, the, to the stimulus. They're able to see the stimulus in some sense, but they don't have any conscious experience of it. And this was termed blind sight, and researchers such as uh, Lawrence Weiskrantz uh, did a lot of studies on this. So what, what that really tells us is that, and the reason this has been so influential, is that we can be influenced, our behavior can be influenced by stimuli that we're not in any way conscious of. So we don't have insight into having that knowledge, and nonetheless it, it influences our, our, our behavior and our ability to make decisions. That is, uh, of course, it is super fascinating, and it's also uh, in some ways kind of creepy because I think that we... Um we have an intuition that we are completely aware of 
the sources of all of our behaviors and and whatever and the the um the sort of the antecedents to our behaviors and the sources of why we feel the way we feel um what do you, what would you say from your perspective in psychology uh how would you uh rate that intuition <laughs> uh proved completely incorrect in so many many regards no it's it's absolutely the case that it, it just doesn't stand up to the the scientific evidence we can we can show that we can influence uh, people in lots of different ways and not not very strongly in the sort of ways that people worry about in the sense of oh what about uh, subliminal advertising and so on although those those methods can and there's some recent studies that show that there can be some influence there but it's it's pretty small it's pretty trivial mm-hmm. uh, but in many other regards um, what we think we're basing our, our judgments and decisions on um, clearly isn't the case. Um, we can, and that, that can be shown time and time again. A lot of the, a lot of our confidence in in the basis of of a judgment um, is is post hoc. We seem to be justifying the decisions. And there's been some beautiful research in that area where, uh, through sleight of hand, you, you you present, for example, pictures of uh, a couple of couple of pictures of different women, for example, and you ask someone to tell me which of these is more attractive. Um, and they, they pick which one's more attractive. And then through sleight of hand, the, the experimenter actually presents that one to them, presents as if it were the one they chose, the other one. So they've now presented the one that they didn't choose as though it was the one that they had said was most attractive. And they said, now can you explain why you found this one more attractive? And they'll in many, many instances, not notice the switch at all and go ahead to provide all the good rational explanation for why they found that one more attractive. Um, <laughs> clearly, they haven't even noticed that, that change. So, I mean, it, it, it's, that's, that's a, perhaps a, a slight tangent on, on your key point about it, it not knowing what the basis of the judgment is, but it really highlights the fact that a lot of time this is post hoc. It's, yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that is all, some of my favorite research is that kind of stuff. And I love the, one of, whenever I have a chance to like give a talk, I'll usually bring up the Nisbet and Wilson um, stockings study where they have everyone rate four different stockings as, as which one they think is the best, but the, yep. uh, but they don't tell people that they're all the exact same stocking and people, people tend to pick the one on the right more often than not. And there's like a lot of explanation as to why, but what's great is that no one ever says that's why they chose that stocking. They come up with all sorts of other explanations for their own, you know, feelings toward this stocking. And, uh, and if it wasn't for the experiment, it wasn't for like the, uh, debriefing, they would go the rest of their life not knowing that that was why they did what they did. And of course, like, you know, the extrapolation from that is we're always explaining ourselves to ourselves and sometimes we're right. and Sometimes we're wrong and we don't know when, uh, that is, um, I mean, I, I have, in, in my own particular area of cognitive psychology, I, I, I deal more with more controlled presentations. But another example of, of this is, is where we, we do pre- present subliminal uh, stimuli very, very briefly. And a, a, a very old um, task in this area is, 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 a, is, is a stem completion, a priming of a stem completion. And what that means is, is you present a, at the start of a word, say, T-A-B. Um, now, obviously, that could be a number of different words. It could be table, it could be tablet, um, it could be a, a, a range of different things. And you present very briefly uh, a word uh, that is, is it's usually a backmasked stimulus. So presented for, say, 30 milliseconds, backmasked by a pattern. All they see is just a, a flash of a pattern. They can't see the word, they, they can't report on the accuracy of the word. But nonetheless, if you then present the first three letters of that and you ask them to complete it, they're more likely to complete it 
with the word that was flashed up. Wow. So no access to that information, no conscious access, but it does prime them to be completing this. this oh, work. man, that is so fascinating. Um, and we're, we're moving toward your research slowly here, but uh, if one of the things that plays into the, what you're talking about in a way, one of the ways this is sort of demonstrated in the lab is through this thing called artificial grammar learning. Could you sort of, uh, I'm sure that most people have never heard that before. What is artificial grammar learning? Uh, so it's a, it's a fancy name, but it's a, a very simple paradigm. It's been extremely useful. Essentially, all you do, if I take you through the, the way this would, a, a person would experience this, what you say to someone is you say, right, this is just a, a short-term memory test. I'm going to present strings of letters. Uh, so, like for example, X, T, T, V, T, W, something like that. And I want you to try and memorize it for five seconds, and then I'm going to give you 10 seconds to type it back in. No. Now, you might do this for, say, 45 of these strings. So just go through this. And what they think they're doing is just trying to memorize the strings. Now, of course, unbeknown to them, there's actually a systematic set of rules which dictate which letters can follow which other letters. It's, it's a complex set, so it's not easy to see that that's the case, but there is some rule in there. And you can refer to that, that rule set as a grammar, if you like, which is where the name comes from. Then what you do is you say to that same participant, I'm going to show you that you tell them at that point, after they've done that initial training, you tell them that there were a certain rules in there, even though you didn't know it. And you say, I'm going to show you a new set of strings. All of these are new. They're none of them are the same as the ones you've seen before. But exactly half of them obey the same rules as those that you saw in that memory phase. Now, in, in doing that, you've, you've made them aware that there are rules there, but you haven't told them what the rules are. And now they go through, and for each of these strings that you present, you say, does it obey the rules or doesn't it? And they just have to say yes or no. And then you might also ask them, how confident are you? Do you have any confidence at all in that judgment? Or do you really think you're just picking at chance? And now systematically in that, in that using that paradigm for a very long time, um, we show that people show um, knowledge. Um, they usually will score 60, 65% accuracy would be typical in that sort of study. Um, and many instances they're doing that when they feel they have no confidence at all. So it's, a, it's what we call the confidence criterion for, for unconscious knowledge. So if they, if they say it's the guessing criterion for unconscious knowledge, if they say they're completely guessing and yet they're still scoring 60, 65% correct, then we're saying that knowledge that you have is unconscious. So th th this, is, this is so insane to me because the, the idea is that it basically is that you are, you're figuring out the grammar, you're figuring out the puzzle, the, you're sort of sorting out the... Um, the mechanics of a problem, but you have no awareness that you're doing so. And you're That's like, right. and you're completing the task. You're doing it correctly before you're cognitively aware of how you're completing it correctly. Is that, is that sort of how it works? That, yeah, absolutely right. The, the, over time, if you, if you gave them enough training or even in, in some instances, if you, if you give feedback on that test phase, which you don't normally, then people can gradually start to, to, to gain more conscious access. And some people will, will some of the time say, oh, I, I'm pretty sure about this one, actually. And, and, and sure enough, they'll, they're more likely to be right when they do have that confidence. Um, but nonetheless, on others, I think, I have no idea. I'm just going to pick no because I'm just guessing. And nonetheless, still show good above chance accuracy on that. But this, this might be a little confusing describing it in this way because uh, in, in actual fact, in, in, in terms of blind insight, we're interested in those participants who weren't able. Weren't right, able right, to, right, right, right. So it's the reverse. <laughs> so, so you took this uh, and you sort of twisted it up. And you know, I, I'm sure we've many of us have experienced this before. We oftentimes we've, um, I mean, you can 
sometimes you go with your gut and you're, and you're right and you don't know how, how it could possibly be so and you're slowly you know, uh, getting to the answers before you're aware of how you're doing it. But your research took this sort of paradigm and, and fiddled with it a little bit and got something new out of it. So let's go ahead and get there. Uh, take us through uh, your research and what you discovered. Okay. Well, probably the, the, the point to start is is that with this sort of this sort of typical finding in artificial grammar learning, um, as with blind sight that we discussed, what you're seeing is people are able to make accurate judgments despite not knowing that they can do so. So they lack what we refer to as metacognition, so knowledge about the knowledge you have. Just to put that in a sort of everyday sense, if, if I said to you, um, what's the capital of France? Um, you say, well, it's Paris, and you, you'll be pretty certain that you're right. Um, some more obscure country um, in the center of Africa, perhaps, you might take a stab at it, but have less confidence. The de degree of insight that you have to whether you're right or wrong is your metacognition. So that's what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so in this, in this, in, in blind, blind sight, what you see is they're accurate. They can say that the line's vertical or horizontal, but they don't have any insight at all into their ability to do that. They think they're just guessing. Exactly the same sort of thing in typical in artificial grammar learning performance. They perform way above chance, but they think they're just, just picking a chance. So what we wanted to know, however, was whether you can get the opposite dissociation. So what you're seeing there is a dissociation between their performance, their decision accuracy, and their metacognitive insight, so their metacognitive accuracy. Um, just to, to explain how we measure that accuracy is, is the correlation between your confidence and your accuracy. So if you're always more confident when you're right than when you're wrong, you've got a strong correlation there that you're much more confident when right than wrong, then you've got good, solid metacognition. Yep, you've got that insight. Mm -hmm. If you had no correlation between those things, so that when you were right, you would, you, your confidence was no greater than when you were wrong, then you'd say there's, there's no metacognitive insight there. Now, what we wanted to know is whether you can get the other dissociation so that you could get metacognitive insight that is accurate, so you could be more confident in your right responses than your wrong responses, despite being at chance in those original decisions. So creating a situation where people perform at chance in the actual original decision, so they, they, they can't get it right more often than wrong, and yet when you ask them for their confidence about their a response that they made that was correct by chance, they happen to be more confident than a response that they got wrong by chance. That's what we wanted to know. And the reason for wanting to look at that is it, is it challenges some fundamental theories about metacognition. So to take you through the actual, the, the actual experiment, um, what we did is uh, we had a very large set of data from people who had done these artificial grammar learning studies. Um, so a, a large, large number of participants, so 450 participants had done these studies. What we wanted to do was take those participants who performed at chance on this, which of course you're always going to find some that aren't performing above chance, and then look to see whether their confidence was related to their accuracy, even though they were performing at chance. Now you can't just go ahead and do that selection because... Uh, regression to the mean um, is a, a process which would mean that if you did that, you've got a biased sample and that it's, it, it, it'll, it'll always give you that result. So we had to do something a little bit more complicated than that, but essentially what it meant was we, 
We selected participants who performed at chance on the first three quarters of the responses, and then we did the analysis on the last quarter, which overcomes those biasing issues. It's a, it's a detail, but it's quite an important one. Mm-hmm. So what, what we've got then is a, a sample of participants whose responses in that last quarter were also at chance, so we know they're performing at chance, and now we could actually look and measure their metacognitive insight and look at that correlation. And sure enough, what we found was their metacognitive insight there was 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 not only significant, it wasn't significantly different to those participants who were performing above chance on the decision. So you've got two groups of people now. You've got those who perform above chance on the, the, the grammaticality judgment or the deciding whether it obeys the rules or not, and those who are performing at chance. And now we're looking at the correlation between confidence and accuracy for those two groups. And we find that they didn't differ. So those people who didn't weren't able to correctly classify the grammar strings as, being, as obeying these rules or not. So they were at chance on that. They may as well have been just literally flicking a coin and picking. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, when they by chance got it right, they had a higher confidence rating than when they at chance got it wrong. And that really fundamentally challenges both this, these models of metacognition and our everyday intuitions. So what do you, I mean... Is, it, is there something malfunctioning in this person's mind? Is that they're, they're not sort of connecting between the, the, uh, the, the, the intuitive sense they, got, they have in their gut and then they're following through with the answer? Or, or is there some other speculation out there that sort of explains what's going on? What do you, what do you think's happening there? I, I think it's in some ways there is, it, this is speculation. I would definitely say it's speculation. I, I think there is a reasonably logical explanation for it. And that is that we know that when we make responses to questions framed in different ways, we are able to draw on different information. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't realize we're doing it, but that's the case. So what I suspect is happening here is when people are asked, does this string of letters obey the rules? They adopt a very analytical process, or some of them will. And in some instances, they'll adopt an analytical process that is flawed. So basically, they're, they're following a rule, perhaps, that they've devised, um, and it's wrong. So as a result, they, they score a chance in terms of that decision. However, then when you say, how confident are you that you got that right or wrong? They've taken a more relaxed, more intuitive approach to that and say, well, how do I feel? They're, not, they're no longer engaging that sort of analytical process. And in, 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 in engaging that intuition they're potentially drawing on information mm. that is in addition to what they were using for that analytical process. I think as a, I'm trying to give you a sort of an everyday example of that, the, the best that I've been able to come up with is, uh, if you imagine you were trying to choose the right um, route on the, on the underground, um, so you, you, you're there, you're waiting at the tube station, um, and you're saying, right, which route should I take to get from here to, to there in the quickest time? And you pick a route, you pick what you think is going to be the shortest route just based on the number of stops it involves. So you go from station A to station B and there's three stops along the way and then station B to station C and there's only two stops by one route but there's, there's seven stops by the other so you're going to go the one with the sh- shortest number of stops. That makes sense. It's a, an analytical process you've gone through to pick which you think is going to be shortest. Then you hop on the train and the moment you hop on it you think, damn it, I've chosen the wrong one. I should have gone the other route. Now, how could that happen? How could that logically occur? Well, it could be that there's some forgotten knowledge that you have or semi-forgotten knowledge that, that about 
having breakdowns on that line. Mm. So that line has, has suffered sort of more breakdowns when you've been traveling than the other line. Um, and that has influenced your confidence, your feeling of confidence suddenly says, hang on, this isn't right. But you didn't use that information. It wasn't made available to the original decision. That is, that is first of all, absolutely fantastic way to put that into a perspective, that it really makes it click into my head better than it was before because that's great. And also, wow, that's, it's, um, I mean, you mentioned in the paper that we, you know, we, we have, this is hard to grasp in some ways because we have an intuitive sense that when we, that we sort of draw upon the same pool of knowledge to both answer a question and then to determine whether or not that question is correct. Um, and the way I was making sense of it was that if we had like, it's like checking, if you just recently checked your bank account and then someone asks you how much money you have in the bank, uh, you can answer that question and then feel confident that you're answering the question correctly. And it feels like the confidence and the knowledge both spring from the same source, the memory of the um, of the bank statement, like the actual physical uh, you know, numbers that you are seeing pop in your mind. But it seems that your research suggests that our confidence and the accuracy of our responses and the actual accuracy itself are generated separately from, from different sources. Well, potentially in some cases, I would put that caveat there because uh, this was a subset of the participants, of course. Right, 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 right. For okay. most, for most, most conditions and most decisions, quite as you would expect, our confidence correlates very strongly with our accuracy. Uh, but what we've shown that because that that doesn't necessarily have to be the case, the fact that it that it fails even in a single instance tells us that our our brains aren't wired such that that is a necessary arrangement and this is this is the point so the the a lot of the models of metacognition which are based around something called signal detection theory mm-hmm. um are hierarchical which is exactly as intuition would say is um your, your your basic judgment and your confidence in it are being driven by the same source of information so you'd expect them to correlate um and what what this dissociation that we've discovered tells us is at least in some instances there's some additional information being drawn upon for that that second process. So it's not a, not a simple hierarchy. It's not just the same information feeding the decision and that information from the decision feeding your confidence. Wow. It doesn't, doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. Okay. That's great. That's, that's awesome. I love it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of us have experienced this metacognition that you're talking about. Um, like, uh, like, like, you know, you know that you know something, but you can't actually get to the information. So like, say, you know, you know, someone asks you, who's the guy that played in that movie? And you, and you know, you know, the name of the actor, but, yep. you, but you can't produce it. And then after thinking about it for a while, the name pops into your consciousness. And so the information and then the knowledge that you know, the information and the confidence that you're correct about the fact that you know, that information, it's all, it seems as though that, um, your research and other research is showing that these are all sort of separate, um, uh, processes in the mind and maybe even separate physically as far as neurologically speaking. Am I on the right path there? Absolutely. I, I, I can see the connection that the sort of that feeling of knowing is, is some, some of the research refers to. No, I can see there is a dissociation there where you, you, you know you know this, but you can't tell me it right now. It's uh, slight, and, and you can say, well, you could confidently say, yes, I know this. I just can't give it to you right this minute. <laughs> right. <laughs> come back, come back in half an hour, and it'll <laughs> popped into my mind. Absolutely, and that's that's a very real effect. It's uh, it's an interesting one, which does show similar sort of dissociation. And I, I would agree with that. That's, yeah. That makes sense. So, uh, for someone who's never heard of this, is all this all sort of plugs into? Would you agree that this is adding to the um, the research, the body of research that makes up signal detection theory? Your research is adding to that. Is that what this uh, sort of plays into? 
Um, not so much. I mean, what signal detection theory has been around since the 50s, and it's been a hugely successful. It is, it is, a, it's a, a wonderful, wonderful theory. They're really, really useful in so many domains. I mean, it's, it's psychology adopted it quite early on. And, could, and you sort of, it. could you sort of, could you sort of tell very briefly explain to people what what it is, and, and then sort of, and then, and then, and then correct me for being wrong. <laughs> well, I can, I can try a little. Um, it's basically the theory is a means to discern the, 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 the difference between the information in some input, some signal, hence the name, and the random noise that occurs with anything. So obviously you can perhaps see that most clearly in, in some of the areas that was applied initially in radar, for example, where you've got some signal that there, but, there, but there's a lot of static, there's a lot of interference. And it was a, a theory that, that enables you to... Um, estimate, quite accurately estimate, the, the extent to which you can differentiate the signal from the background noise. In everyday terms, uh, your ability to see something that's um, flashed on a screen, um, you've got noise in your visual system all the time, there's visual noise there, and you've got this input, this signal coming in, um, and your ability to, to distinguish, say, a circle from a square is, is a similar sort of Con, sort of uh, contrast. So you're saying, okay, how am I? How much am I able to to tell these things apart? And how much? It, how separate is? How much am I able to separate this signal, this this circle that's being presented, from noise? Some sort of just noise in my my visual system. If this is a very very low low contrast stimulus, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, its application, as I say, in psychology is, is there's been two forms of it. One which is Absolutely wonderful and been really effective. And that is to measure, provide us a bias-free measure of metacognition. What do we mean by bias-free? Well, here's, here's the challenge. Okay, so if you give someone a, a task, say, say our artificial grammar learning experiment as an example, if somebody were to say that it obeys the rules 90% of the time, okay, and let's say only half of them do obey the rules, but they say 90% of the time. Now, obviously, that's going to affect their overall accuracy. So if you're just looking at their accuracy, you can't really um, tell how much they're able to separate out grammatical from ungrammatical strings separately from the extent of their positive bias, if you like. They'd like to say yes more often than no. Mm -hmm. Now, another participant might tend to say um, yes exactly 50% of the time. Now, those two individuals could have the same ability to actually discern between strings, but because of that additional bias, that, that tendency to say yes more often than no in one case and not in the other, it's difficult to get at the, 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 the actual um, sensitivity, if you like, their ability to distinguish right. these signals. Um, what, what signal detection theory has given us is a means by which you can establish that sensitivity independent of the bias. And it's a little complex, but essentially what you do is you, 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 what, it, what it gives you is estimates, separate estimates for for the, the, the thresholds that you're putting around this, um, uh, the, 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 the key signal sensitivity. So it, uh, that's a little confusing way to put it. But essentially what you've got is you've, you've got one point within this distribution where you're saying, okay, well, if it's below this, then I think it's, there, wasn't, there wasn't actually a circle there above this. I think there was. Um, but then outside of each of those, so further below again and further above again, you may have another threshold which says, above that, I have some confidence in my decision. So your original decision might be based on whether it's above or below 
an arbitrary value of 100 just mm -hmm. just for just to give it a value um but you might have a confidence threshold at 90 and 110 so above and above and below that you're saying no i'm sure there wasn't and above it yes i'm sure there was so it's, it separates it out in that way that's quite a complex way of explaining <laughs> sure. it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it is, I mean, it is fundamentally, it's a, it's a, a complex mathematical theory, um, but it's been, it's been applied, as I say, in psychology in two, two ways. First way is to give us this bias-free measure of metacognition, which it does really well and is a, a really nice theory. It's not perfect and there have been refinements of it, um, but it is, it is nice in that regard. Where it falls down and where our, our finding with blind insight really challenges it is where it's been adopted as a model of how metacognition mm. emerges. Okay, yeah. So there, if you followed a signal detection model, you would assume that there has to be. It's, it's relentlessly hierarchical. You can't have more information being used at the, at the metacognitive level in your confidence than was available to your first order judgment. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, that's where we can say, well, that, that it clearly isn't the case. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to have this relationship between confidence and accuracy that we see when your decisions are at chance. And that's simple as that. Uh, yeah. So, and, 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 you know, I know that seems very complex. And, and as a caveat or as a, uh, as an aside, uh, I, I love when, uh, science, I love when psychologists, you know, demonstrate that psychology is, actually quite complicated and uh <laughs> it's uh it's not just going i wonder if people do this and then you like you put people in a lab and go i guess they don't no there's a there's a lot of, there's, there's, a, lot a, there's of... a whole range of psychology to be fair <laughs> i mean I, uh, we all we all typically sort of have envy for those people slightly further onto the harder end of the science i touch a little bit on neuroscience but i'm nowhere i'm not really a neuroscientist i'm a cognitive scientist but uh, cognitive psychologist so yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. i'm a little bit i'm i'm much more Hard end than say a social psychologist, which might do some of some of the more um, more more accessible studies, as you say. <laughs> right, right. We'll have envy further of the of those people doing it a little bit the harder science, as it were. But it, it it's it is fantastic because this is a this is a nut that that psychology is trying to crack and and neuroscience at the same time, and uh, you know they're both having to deal with this black box and trying to figure out what goes in and what comes out and how does it all relate and the this um, notion that it's all low level, you know, uh, sensory inputs that slowly get, uh, or that, you know, in a granular way, build up to the higher level cognition, uh, you know, it sets up this, uh, this problem that you're talking about, which is that, uh, if that's always the case and, you know, it, it makes it so much simpler than it most likely is. It seems actually the research seems to be shaking out that it's very complicated. Some of the speculation that you included in your paper was that there could be all sorts of supportive parallel, um, you know, neural networks and other things that are all play into both, not just the confidence, but also the answer. And it's not just a straight up relationship between, absolutely uh, between, uh, just, there's just one system that gives you confidence or lack of, and then there's another system that gives you the answer or no. not. There's a lot more going involved, correct? Is that, what you're, is that what you're saying? That's right. And it's not certainly one process completes and feeds on to the next, which we would be very surprised if it were, um, in fairness, because we know from the neurology uh, that the brain 
it has an enormous number of these reentrant loops, if you like. So um, there's a lot of feedback in these processes. It's not simply a feed-forward system where one process feeds onto the next. These processes feed back to the ones before them, so they're constantly influencing themselves. So in a, in a very real sense, we'd be surprised if it was purely hierarchical, because it doesn't fit with, with what we know from the neuroscience of, of systems with feedback. Right. Basically. And just feel, I, that's, um, it's wonderful that this is the true way that it works because I would rather us be more complex than I thought we were when I was younger. <laughs> and, uh, and so here's a question, and this is the question that you, you can answer as a, as an expert that a lot of people will want to, to know, uh, that, and, um, this is something that we, that we keep getting more and more information from the world of psychology that is, uh, sort of introducing, um, the lay people to the idea of this two model, uh, concept, this, uh, intuition versus reason, or this sort of like, uh, the thinking fast and slow model that is yep. slowly working its way out there. Um, and the question I think that comes up when you start to get a good grasp of that is when should we be trusting from your research, from your perspective, especially with this blind insight thing that, that you're slowly uncovering here, when should we be trusting our gut and when should we, should we be trusting our, um, pure rational logic? And of course, one of the problems is that we don't always know which one is which whenever we're <laughs> whenever we're coming to a decision or we're making a judgment, but like, um, do you have any sort of tips or advice for, uh, for being, (laughs) being a good user of a human brain to, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's a fair question. I mean, most of my early research used, um, implicit learning and, and that, that very explicitly looks at implicit versus explicit learning, which is another way of looking at this, uh, these two systems. So implicit learning, learning that happens without your awareness, essentially. And then explicit learning, where you're you're very conscious of of what you're learning, and there um, you you see certain tasks where explicit learning works really well, and other tasks where it really doesn't. And artificial grammar learning is is one of those where actually it, it doesn't work that well for most people. But if they just relax and just look at the strings and just taking the information, the, that implicit process, that process without too much analytical. Um, action going on does does work very well to to improve performance. Um, what you find is where the system, where the context is, is ex- there's a lot of complex information there um, that's not in a particularly uh, systematic format, but there's a lot of information in the incoming information. Then actually relying on these um, implicit processes is almost just necessary and inevitable because you you couldn't break it down and, and quickly think through all the logic so if you try to apply an analytical process to something which is just too complex to really be be handled in that way what you end up with is is a, a pretty poor estimate based on a very small amount of information whereas under those circumstances you may be better off just sitting back and going with your intuitive judgment certainly in in, in my experiments with with artificial grammar learning I had one mathematician come and did my study. And it was quite unfortunate because it was a brain imaging study and we, we had her there. And I said afterwards, so I had it going. She said, oh, it's fine. But whenever I didn't have any confidence, I just said yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh, you just ruined the study because I of just, course what we want. I just marked C on all the yeah. answers I didn't know. Yeah, okay. Exactly. And of course, um, she was thinking, logic, she was thinking, well, if I don't know, then it won't make any difference whether I just say yes all the time because half the time I'll be right, half the time I'll be wrong. But of course, she lacked the insight that we have that knows that when you don't think you know, 
actually you still do a bit a lot of the time. So if you let yourself guess in those th cases where you really don't think you know anything, you're more likely to perform above chance than, than not. Um, so that's, that's the thing, is a lot of the time just realizing that in some instances you actually know more than you know that you know. <laughs> oh, that is fantastic. Oh my God. So the, a big takeaway we can send people away with is that uh, when you're doing the multiple choice test, don't just fill in, uh, don't, just, don't just fill in C when you don't know, actually guess. Yes, yes. Do use that guess. Just relax. Go with your intuition. If, you, if, if it's not negatively marked, you've got nothing to lose and you will perform better. What are you uh, working on now? Where is your research headed? Well, there's, there's, I have a number of different uh, research interests. Um, in some other work I've shown that the, uh, the, our ability to, to acquire associations unconsciously, so to learn that two things are associated without conscious perception of either of them is possible, which uh, presents a challenge for some theories of consciousness. So that work will, will definitely following up. Um, this particular uh, phenomenon of blind insight, I'm also following up to see if we can recreate it under other conditions and in other contexts such as visual perception contexts and so on. Um, so I'm doing that. And I'm also looking at uh, the unconscious influences of self-control. So if you're in a depleted state of self-control, how does this influence uh, unconscious processing? So for example, are you more likely to be influenced by an unconscious prime when in that depleted state? Mm. And those sort of questions. I like that last part. That's going to be really interesting stuff. Look, um, Thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure. This is uh, this really is uh, a really uh, new area of psychology and it's very meaty and I think it's awesome that you're doing this work and I, I really appreciate you coming on. You're very welcome. It's been fun. And now we take a break from our program for a word from lynda.com. Right now, you can get lynda.com for one week for free. The service will be free to you for seven full days. You can gorge yourself on a buffet of knowledge. Watch as many videos as you want. Learn as much as you want. Play around with it. See if all this stuff is, is interesting to you. See all the different things they, they offer. Seven days for free. Go to lynda.com slash smart. L-Y-N-D-A.com slash smart. Lynda.com is an easy and affordable way to help individuals and organizations learn. You can instantly stream thousands of courses created by experts on software, web development, graphic design, and more. Now, Lynda.com, they offer fresh content. New courses are added every day. It's easy to learn from them because they're high quality. They're easy to follow video tutorials that are not like something you would find on YouTube. Uh, it's learning at its finest. Great tools like transcripts and playlists, and you can get certificates of course completion that you can publish to your LinkedIn profile. The courses are available from beginner to advanced, all experience levels, no matter what you're looking for. And you can learn on the go through mobile apps. And if you upgrade to a premium plan, you can download all that stuff. You can download it to your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device and watch them offline. But the sky is the limit because... The normal plan is a low monthly price of $25, and that gives you unlimited access to more than 100,000 video tutorials on everything. I mean everything. It's great for developers, uh, software, people, 3D animation, um, audio and music design, 
uh, design for user interfaces, photography. There are so many courses that you would enjoy. I personally have been playing around with this for a while and I love it because I keep getting these emails that say new courses have been added and I run over to lynda.com to see well, what do you have now? I've already taken courses in audio engineering, photography, DSLR cameras, uh, and uh, user interfaces. Now they, and I saw just recently, they have a course they just added on public speaking. There's a course where they will teach you how to be better at lecturing in front of lots of people. It's taught by uh, Laura Burgels, and there are so many things here. I'm looking at it right now. Preparing your speech, identifying your audience, understanding the venue, developing credibility, generating ideas for presentation, building storyboards, rehearsing. That's just the first section. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight courses right there or eight videos in this course, then warming up and opening and delivering. This is so great. And this is something that you would pay a lot of money for by itself. And it's just one of the courses they just added to lynda.com. And one last thing, if you are a software person or you're a person who uses a piece of software in your job, lynda.com gives you courses, usually the day that a new version comes out so that you can stay up to date on the things that have changed or the new features in that software. So to get seven days of this service for free, watch all the videos that you want for free for a week. L-Y-N-D-A, lynda.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. Now what starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, ah, who cares about other things? C is for Cookie. That's good enough for me. C is for Cookie. On That's each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or a scientific study. Right after I eat a cookie, baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader. And you can send your recipes to David at youarenotsosmart.com. And if I pick and bake and eat your recipe, you get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. I also post the recipe and the winner and the photos and everything else at youarenotsosmart.com, as well as the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. And uh, I have a lot of these recipes uh, built up and I will get to all of them. And uh, some of you may, may be wondering, I sent my recipe. I'm not doing them in the order that I've received them in. I just sort of bounce around to pick different cookies so they're not they're not two in a row that are the same, or maybe I pick things that are sort of go along with the season. So uh uh don't don't fret. Don't be discouraged. If you haven't had your cookie come up, it will come up. And uh this week's recipe comes from Linda Vankerhoff, and she sent in chocolate ginger crinkle cookies. Linda, what are you talking about? Crinkle cookies. Well, uh, I have a note here. My wife, Amanda, she bakes all the cookies for the show. And uh, she said, to make sure that I mention that uh, you must combine the dry ingredients, melt butter and half, of a, uh, and half of the chocolate, mix that together with the sugars, add eggs, vanilla, flour, and uh, chocolate and crystallized ginger. The dough will be sticky. Chill that for uh, one to two hours and then shape it into walnut-sized balls and coat those balls. In powdered sugar. Uh, the, uh, the ingredients are flour and Dutch processed cocoa, baking powder, salt, ground ginger, ground cinnamon, unsalted butter, semi-sweet chocolate, dark brown sugar, eggs, vanilla extract, crystallized ginger, and uh, confectioner sugar. And then let me tell you, these, th- these, are, these look like, uh, yes, those are, those are my papers for the instructions. Uh, this cookie looks like a portal looking out of a, uh, out of a ship sailing across the night, sailing across the night sea. I look up into the sky and what do I see? Stars, 
clouds against the inky blackness of the abyss. That is what this cookie looks like. It looks like a beautiful, starry, cloudy night. Um, just a little pocket of one, a scoop, a scoop of a beautiful, cloudy night. And uh, it's because it's actually, it's sort of a dark uh, brown, almost black cookie with um, speckles of the confectioner sugar all around it. And uh, it's flat on the bottom and it's sort of uh, lumpy on the top, but it's pretty flat all over. And it's a really beautiful cookie. Like these, of all the cookies we've made, this is definitely one of the most beautiful to look at, just aesthetically, just sitting there on a plate or the big batch of them as they're cooling. Beautiful. Looks beautiful. And uh, she says as much in the email. Uh, Linda says in her email that she uh, usually bakes cakes. That's what she prefers to do. Um, and that these cookies look amazing. They're crispy on the outside and chewy on the inside with a nice surprising kick of ginger. Yes, all those things I'm anticipating, and she's definitely right about the way they look. Uh, they're easy to make, even though it seems like there's a lot of steps. If you want to impress someone, if you want to impress somebody, I suggest making these cookies because they look so damn hard to make, but they are actually um, really, really, really easy by comparison to some of the other cookies that we've made. And here's the other thing. Uh, she says in her uh, email that she loves to read the articles on Boing Boing that accompany the podcast. She loves the podcast and that uh, she especially enjoyed the groupthink stuff that we talked about a while back. Um, and she says that uh, she's, it scares her the idea that certain things in our culture could be the result of groupthink, big things. And um, she hopes that we enjoy the cookie. And she has this really nice uh, message at the end of the instructions where she says uh, she's from Amsterdam. And... Uh, she says, um, to my wife, the baker, I like bakers. They tend to be honest people who know how to enjoy life. Oh, you nailed it. Oh, you nailed it. Yes, that is true of all bakers, I am sure, especially of my wife, the baker of this cookie. Let's get ready to crinkle. Here it goes. Chocolate ginger crinkle cookies from the Netherlands. Linda Vankerhoff looks like a starry night. Let's eat it. Pacino. Mm. Yes. Okay. Linda Vankerhoff. No, no. Chocolate ginger crinkle pacinos. That's what we're going to call these pacinos. I guarantee you, if you take a bite of the chocolate ginger crinkle cookie, you will become, you will become Al Pacino from the movie Heat. Mmm. That's got a great texture. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yes. And they are crinkly. They're crispy on the outside, like she said. Uh, and they're very, very soft in the center. And they're very thin, too. So if you if you push the, push on them, they sort of start to give. And, and, then, and then the softness gives and the whole thing will smush. Um, but it's a ginger cookie on the outside through and through with like a soft chocolate cookie on the inside. It's so nice and so pretty. And um, it will kick you in the tongue and cause your pachinoness to come right out of your mouth. Let's try again one more before we go on. Press me. but you know. Oh boy. Linda Vankerhoff, chocolate ginger crinkle pacinos. I really recommend these. I think you'll love them. If you love ginger cookies and you're, you're thinking to yourself, no one can ever improve the ginger cookie. The Dutch have done it. And I have proof. Uh, just check out the recipe over at you are not so smart.com. Thank you, Linda. A signed copy of the book is headed to the Netherlands. Mm. Right to Amsterdam. Coming right to you. Thank you so much. 
All right, let's talk about some self-delusion, shall we? This is new research, and this new research suggests that if you hold extreme political beliefs far to the right or far to the left, not only are you less likely to be swayed by learning new information that threatens your political beliefs, you are less likely to be weighed down by psychological anchors. I learned about this in a press release from the Association for Psychological Science, and you can read it yourself at psychologicalscience.org. The headline is, Political Extremists May Be less susceptible to common cognitive bias. They explain that research recently published in Psychological Science conducted by Mark J. Brandt and other psychologists at the College of New Jersey attempted to induce the anchoring effect on thousands of people across the United States. And although most people fell for the psychological trick, people who were on the extremes of the political spectrum, both liberal and conservative, were much less likely to be affected in their judgments and decision-making by existing anchors. Now, the anchoring effect, it works like this. Let's say you are asked, how many countries are in Africa? More or less than 10. Research shows that if you you hear this like this, you will make an estimate close to 10. If you think there are more, you might say 25. But if I had asked if there were more or less than 30, you would estimate that there were maybe, you know, 35 or 40. And the right answer, by the way, is 47. So in moments of uncertainty, you change your estimates to match the anchor that some outside party creates. And this is why when negotiating, the first person to throw out an offer has the upper hand. In this research, subjects were asked questions like, the distance between New York and San Francisco is greater than 2,000 miles. How far is it? So if you change the number of miles, for instance, if you change the initial question to, the distance is shorter than 6,000 miles, you will get different estimates. Each person's estimate will be closer to one anchor or the other, except... That's not true, it seems, for certain people with strong political opinions. Researchers found that after randomly assigning the anchors to thousands of participants, most people did indeed provide guesses that were closer to whichever anchor they received. But the more politically extreme the subjects, the farther from the anchors their estimates became. So the scientists speculate that this is probably due to another well-documented phenomenon known as belief superiority. People who are considered politically extreme also tend to believe that their beliefs are not actually beliefs, but facts. They're the truth. And that people who disagree don't see the world differently because they've had different experiences and, and uh, you know, that the world is actually a complex, nuanced place. No, people who disagree with them are just simply wrong. The world is not gray, but black and white. And for them, they feel like they have special insight into the sharpness of that blackness and whiteness of the world. So in other words, their beliefs are superior to others. So those sorts of people tend to notice and reject suggestions and estimates from others. In other words, they recognize anchors, perhaps unconsciously, when other people do not. And then they scoff at that information, just like they do any new piece of information that wasn't already inside their heads. And that is, that's a new piece of research coming out of uh, the journal Psychological Science, which is a journal of the Association for Psychological Science. And you can read more about it at psychologicalscience.org under the headline, Political Extremists May Be Less Susceptible to Common Cognitive Biases. (laughs) 
That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. Head to boingboing.net for more great podcasts like this one and head to youarenotsosmart.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes to listen to all of the previous episodes of this show. And you can find links to everything that I talked about today at youarenotsosmart.com and you can learn more about both of my books there. You can send your cookie recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com and if I bake your cookie, I will send you a signed copy of one of those books. Follow You Are Not So Smart on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. On Twitter, it is at NotSmartBlog, and I'm at David McCraney. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace, and all of the music beds are by Drew Garraway. Double, 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 double